I want to stay in this vein on this series on worship. Um, but this morning, uh, you know, I prayed all week and I, I really sought the Lord. And there's a million different directions I could have gone in on this subject. And I really felt impressed upon my heart to speak from this verse. And I want to speak uh, from the subject this morning, the beauty of the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and say the beauty of the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and say, what's that? We're going to find out. Amen. Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. David's, this is the David uh, writing this psalm. He says, one thing. Someone say one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Here's our key verse for the day. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So we know that David was a worshiper. Amen. So he's saying, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. And of course, to worship. But here he's very specific in his worship. There's a... There's a longing in his heart to actually behold the beauty of the Lord. So one more time, say the beauty of the Lord. So we're going to kind of ease in this. I'm just going to ease into this and then end up preaching here in a few minutes. It always comes out, you know. How many know that worship is a response? And what I mean by that is... God has to be revealed at some level for us to actually worship because it's a response. I'll give you an example. We, we, we really need to understand this. This is so important, even in our theology and our thinking. I mean, have you ever caught yourself saying this uh, on, on, you know, some of us know the date. How many know the date you were saved? Have you ever caught yourself saying, on this date, that's the date I found grace or I found God. And then... You start to realize, wait, that's 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 a inaccurate statement because we didn't find God because God wasn't lost. That date is the date that you surrendered to the invitation that he gave. How many of you know Jesus said, unless he draws, no one can come, right? How many of you know that we didn't find him? There was actually an invitation that went out from the Father. And unless he sends that invitation, Unless he seeks us out, how many know that we're hopeless? And so this is what I truly believe about worship. The same way that we cannot come to salvation on our own. We have to literally be drawn by the Holy Spirit. I believe it's impossible to worship without revelation. Because it's, un- it's not until he's revealed that we respond. Because you can't worship a God you don't know. You can't worship a God that hasn't been revealed. Just stay with me. So worship is a response. And so what is the response? The response is as he's revealed and and as we see him, worship is ascribing to him worth. Amen? Worth-ship. Worship. Worship is nothing less than seeing and then ascribing to him worth And therefore, worship is a response. But this also means that worship only takes place where there's revelation. That's key. Someone say that. Worship only takes place where there's revelation. And let me give you an example. I love this story in the book of Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. Uh, I won't read the whole passage. But Jacob uh, comes to this place. And many of us are familiar with this story. He takes a rock. And he lays his head on it, right? How many of you are thankful for modern times? For your, uh, <laughs> what's that brand? Tempur-Pudic, soft pillow. I mean, how many of you are thankful that you're not sleeping on a rock? I mean, but even, I mean, we could get into this, but I don't want to get sidetracked. The rock he was sleeping on is a typology of Christ. But the point is this, I'm glad I'm not sleeping on a rock, right? So Jacob lays his head on a rock in this place. And the Bible says as he's sleeping, he has a dream. 
And God reveals things to him. And and this is what it says in verse 16 when he wakes up. It says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. The Lord was in this place and he didn't know it. Here's the point. There is no response when you're not aware. (laughs) The moment he woke up, Jacob had an aha moment and he realized the Lord's in his place and I didn't know it, but he knows it now. Right. And he says how and it says he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And of course, we know that uh, Jacob names this place Bethel, which literally means the house of God. Do Do you see that that the light bulb had to be turned on in his head? In his spirit, he he received revelation where before he was ignorant. Amen. Here's another example. This is one of my absolute favorite stories in all of the gospel is when the two disciples are on their way to the village of Emmaus. How many know this story? They're confused. They're, They're dealing with disappointment because Jesus has been crucified and they've heard rumors that he's been resurrected. But they're trying to make sense of this all. Am I right? The Bible says this. And this is Jesus in his resurrected state. I I don't know about you, but some of my favorite stories and passages in the Bible is what Jesus chose to do after he was resurrected. It's interesting. He was just appearing places, walking through doors, right? Disappearing. (laughs) Because the resurrected Christ, I mean, literally he was, uh, the Bible says he went from um, being... One manifestation, it says that he actually became a life-giving spirit. The limitations were really taken off of him. And so it says in in the Gospels that as the disciples were walking on, uh, on the road to Emmaus, it says that Jesus came and walked with them. But their eyes were withheld from seeing who he was. So here they are walking with Jesus. Right. Or here they are walking. They're confused about everything that's happened. They're discussing Jesus. Jesus comes and walks up next to him, but they can't see him. And the Bible says that as they walked to this village, Jesus began to reveal to them himself in the scriptures, beginning in the Torah, beginning all the way back to Genesis. All through the scriptures, the Bible says that Jesus began to lay out the scriptures. Then they get to this uh, village and they invite Jesus in to have supper. And as Jesus is breaking the bread, it says their eyes were opened. And then what happened next? Jesus literally vanished from their sight. Then one of the disciples turned to the other one and said, we should have known it was him. Because as he was walking with us and unveiled the scriptures, our hearts were burning in us. Where there's revelation... Wherever Christ is unveiled to us, worship is the response. See, have, have, have you ever figured this out? Have you ever experienced burnout in your life? I want to tell you where burnout comes from. Burnout comes from when we start trying to fuel our own fire instead of allowing him to constantly be revealed because he's the one that fuels the fire. It was pretty, I mean, they, they, here they are, lost, confused, and all this... All, But literally, they're just sitting there and allowing Christ to reveal himself. And as he's revealed, their hearts begin to burn. And and when they finally have revelation of who he is, he disappeared. Do you know why? And we're going to talk, we're going to get there in a second. You don't have to see him with your natural eyes to see him. Once they saw him by the spirit, they no longer needed to see him with their physical eyes. But worship, so worship is... A matter of revelation. Someone say revelation. There's this song that I love. Um, how many of you have ever heard of, there's, there's a worshiper, her name is Misty Edwards. Anyone ever heard of any of her music? She has this incredible song. I used to listen to it and never really hit me the wisdom in this song until years later. She has this song and it simply says, it takes you to love you. So increase revelation. And she'll, she'll sing it over and over like with the piano. It takes you to love you. So increase revelation. Because unless he's revealed, we can't respond. 
Here in, in Psalm 27, David is a man that has, at this point, he's seasoned in his life as, as a worshiper. He's been pursuing the Lord for years, and he's gotten to the place where he can pray this prayer. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. David has arrived at a place where he has come to an understanding of the worthiness of God. And he has seen enough of God to want more. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you want to see more of him? Is that your heart's cry? Right up front, I just, I just want to, you know, I, I, I warn myself often and I want to warn you. Beware of this attitude of having arrived. Oh, I, I know Jesus. I've been walking with Jesus for years. I know worship. I know that every, listen, the minute we stop being poor in spirit and stop being like a child and daily dependent upon bread from the father, the day that we stop being dependent upon him and hungry for more of him is the day that we stop growing. And, and that's the moment that we stop seeing him. This is not in my notes, but this is interesting. He says he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Oh, this is so, this is just like, this is so good. You know, sometimes we feel resisted and we think that it's always the enemy. But here's the, here's the point. If, if we're operating in pride, it may not be the enemy that's resisting us. It may be the father. He says, listen. I'll reveal myself to people who know they're in need. I'll reveal myself to a people who are humble enough to seek me. But he can't do anything with pride. Oh, oh, you're good. You know everything there is to know about me. Okay, you're good. But here, let me, let me tell you. I don't know about you, you know, and, and when I, I, we all, that sneaks up in all of us. And we got to be wary of that thing. We, whenever that thing even starts to creep up, I, I, this is my, my, my suggestion. Just repent of it and get it out right then. And ask the Lord, say, Lord, take me back. Make me like a child again. Make me poor in spirit. You know what poor in spirit means? It means to come to the Lord needing and expecting him to meet all of your spiritual needs. Like, Lord, I, I can't do this by myself. I need you. Like Misty Edwards says, it takes you to love you. Increase revelation. Amen. So David had a revelation of God's worthiness. And he, he, there was this cry in his heart to behold God's beauty. But here's my question this morning. What is the beauty of the Lord? You know, that word is strange for us sometimes to think about when we're speaking about the Lord. You know, I'll speak from my personal experience, and maybe you can relate to this. In my early days of walking with Jesus, beauty is not one of the words I used all the time. Can, you know, I think that partly is because I'm a man. I'm just being honest. And it seemed a little feminine. Does that make sense? I guess I'm, you know, I have a few men in here that are honest. Like, like for me, it was easy for me to be like, he's mighty. He's powerful. You know, the day I got saved is that I got healed. So the first thing that I encountered of the Lord was his love and grace. Yes, but his power. So for me, it was easy for me to say he's mighty. He's powerful. He's kind. He's loving. He's full of grace. I could get on board with all that. But when the word beauty was not really in my vocabulary yet. And I knew it was in the Bible, but I didn't use it much. Because... To understand the beauty of the Lord, it only comes by revelation. And this is what I truly believe. It takes time of sitting with Jesus and gazing at him to really begin to understand what the scriptures mean by beauty. And the Lord is beautiful. Are you with me this morning? And I love that of all people... It's David who writes Psalms 27. Because how many of you know that David is not just another ordinary man? In other words, let me, let me say it like this. No one could accuse David of being a wuss. This is, remember, this is a man that while he was still a teenager, he killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. 
at least one lion and at least one bear that we know of, right? You know, when he killed Goliath, they say that he was 17 years old. So he went from killing a lion and a bear with his bare hands, which there's, I know there's some tough men in here, but I don't know any one of us who have killed a lion or a bear. Then he, he, he graduates to slaying giants with a slingshot. And then not only that, the Bible goes on to describe him as a mighty man of war. The Bible says that while Saul was killing his thousands, David was killing his. This guy was no joke, right? But yet in Psalm 27, here, here, th- th- this guy is pretty masculine in that regard. Does that make sense? Like he, in my estimation, David, as far as Old Testament types and, and, and figures, David is, in my opinion, someone that a lot of us men should aspire to. He, he wasn't afraid to be masculine when he needed to. But here's the point. He also wasn't afraid to go get in his secret place and saying, oh, that's great. You know, he was king. Yeah, that's great too. But he said one thing. Have I desired of the Lord? Not to be a good warrior, not to necessarily be a great king, although that's a good aspiration. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. It's to dwell in the house of the Lord. And even more specifically, my heart's desire is that I would behold the beauty of the Lord. (laughs) It takes time, though, to see this beauty. You know, I think about You know, in Ezekiel 10, uh, Isaiah 6, the book of Revelation talks about these, the living creatures who are are around his throne. Amen. And it describes other angels and Revelation kind of goes into more detail about the elders and all this stuff. But the Bible describes there are beings around the throne of God that have eyeballs everywhere. Right. I mean, when you're reading it, if we were to step back from a natural perspective, it's, it's a little creepy to think about this being with eyes everywhere. Am I, am I, like, it sounds like something from a Stephen King novel, right? But, but there's a very good reason why they have to have so many eyes. I think, I think it's representing something is that they're looking at God. They're surrounded. They're, they're surrounding the throne. And, and here's what I take from that. It's that there's so much of God to take in that one eye won't do. Two eyes won't do. Three eyes won't do. Four eyes won't do. Five eyes won't do. They literally are covered with eyes because they're taking in who God is. And in Isaiah and in other portions of the scripture, it says that some of these angels, what they're doing is they're around the throne and they're crying holy. Holy. Holy is the Lord, right? And here's the thing. That's not like, that's not because in heaven, there, there, there's a projector and they're reading off and they're just repeating words or they got a script and they're saying, holy, okay, you say holy now. I'll, no, what they're doing is they're looking at God and as they're seeing him, they're getting a revelation and they're saying, he's holy. This angel over here is seeing him and they're saying, no, he's holy. And, 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 and when it comes back to this angel and he's saying he's holy again, but it's important to understand they're not just repeating each other. They're speaking from the revelation that they're taking in that very moment. And every time they say it, it's different than before because they're seeing him all over again. This is why. We can't ever have that attitude of, oh, I've seen everything. I, I know everything there is to know about him. No, you don't. There's no way you do. There's no way you can take him all in in one moment. And here's the other thing. To speak of the Lord's beauty, we need to understand that that his beauty goes far beyond our superficial definitions and limitations. Think about it like this. You know, in heaven, there's beauty everywhere. How many know there's gold? In heaven. How many know there's precious stones? How many know there's jasper and, and a sea of glass and there's, there's pearls and there's all these things? But and how many know that would be a sight to see? That would be beautiful. 
But the Bible doesn't say the angels are surrounding the, the pearly gates. It doesn't say the angels are surrounding the gold on the streets. It doesn't say the angels are worshiping the sea of glass because that's beautiful. What does it say though? It says they're worshiping the lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. This is what that tells me is this. Heaven is a beautiful place, but what makes heaven beautiful The real beauty of heaven is the one who sits on the throne. Isn't it interesting that in heaven, they're surrounded by all of the things that unfortunately mankind worships here on earth. Money, precious stuff. How many know there are wars being fought right now over diamonds and money and power and oil, right? And in heaven, isn't it interesting that they're surrounded by all of this abundance and it's almost like they could care less because the real beauty is the one who sits on the throne. That's where his beauty is. But what is his beauty? This is what I believe. And, 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 and again, I think first and foremost, it's indescribable. Okay. Let me just say that because anything I do today to describe it is going to fall short. And all I'm going to be able to do is scratch the surface of it. I believe our human language falls short. We do our best with what words we have. But, you know, the best way I could say it is this, is that that's why God has to be known and experienced at a deeper level than just uh, concepts and language. Because they fall short. Of describing how awesome he is. Amen. But we need to understand that where his beauty comes from. One of the ways to describe it is is that they come from his attributes. His attributes. I had a friend one time that was was on a was having a heart attack. He he had had a drug overdose. Very good friend of mine. And the Lord, he actually got saved um, on, on the operating table. He, he had an overdose, and I guess it induced a, um, a heart attack. And the day he got saved, um, he says that while he was dying, he says that he, he, this is what he says, I have no reason to doubt him. He says that he had an encounter with Jesus on his deathbed. And he said, you know, I saw, I saw the Lord as I was dying. And I said, and this was interesting, I asked him, I said, describe him. And he said, you know what? He was so beautiful. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you know, we talk about things like love and grace. And he says, what we don't understand. It's like John says, God is love. God doesn't just love. He is love. My friend told me this. He said, this is the best way I can describe it. He said, love was not something he was doing. Love was something he was. And it was radiating from his very being. You see, one of the ways to describe glory, you know, obviously one of the words is the kabod, the heaviness of God's presence, the weightiness. But the other way that the Bible talks about the glory of the Lord is to describe his attributes that make up his being. Amen? His character, his, his ways, his way of being. That's why when Moses saw, he said, Lord, show me your ways. And the Bible says that when, when, when Moses was up in the cloud of glory, it says that God allowed all of his goodness to pass before him. So we need to understand his presence is weighty, but to, to press into that more, what is, what is in the essence, what is that weightiness? And I believe a lot of that weightiness comes from his very character and attributes of himself. Am I making sense today? And although I've never seen Jesus with my eyes, okay, I've never physically seen Jesus with my physical eyes. You know, and, and, and people talk about in, encounters they've had, and I, I've read stories, and, and it, you know what, I'm jealous of that. I would love to see Jesus too with my physical eyes. And one day I will, amen. One day we all will behold him face to face. But here's the thing. I don't have to see him face to face. I see him every day. And here's the other thing. I can see him whenever I want. 
Not with my physical eyes. I mean, I can't, I can't tell Jesus. I need you to appear right now for my physical eyes. I wish he would. But I, but I see him every day and anytime I want to through the spirit opening up the eyes of my heart and illuminating Christ to me. I can see him. We used to sing that song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. One of, my, one of my favorite worship songs, it's actually called, the song is called Jesus, You're Beautiful. And in the song, the, the, the worship leader who wrote it, it goes like this. Open, um, he said, uh, spirit of wisdom, open my eyes. Spirit of revelation, open my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you rightly. I don't have to see him with my physical eyes to see his beauty because the spirit of wisdom and revelation will illuminate him and reveal himself to me. One of my favorite ways to encounter the beauty of the Lord is actually in the scriptures. How many know this word is powerful? See, if we're just reading this book in our own human understanding, we, there's limitations there. But how many know when the spirit breathes on this book, he's revealed. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus unveiled the scriptures to them, their hearts burned. I, I want to suggest something to you that every time you open your word, Jesus can ooze off of the page and leap off of the page and jump off at you. And I believe that you can see him. And, and, and there, there, was a, there was a time in my life. Where I wanted to know. What Psalm 20. I said Lord I, I need to know what David knew. What show me the beauty of the Lord. So in my prayer time. I'd say in my prayer time. Show me your beauty. In my worship. Show me your beauty. And when I'm reading your word. Show me your beauty. And one of my favorite things. Now is to encounter the beauty of the Lord in the scriptures as he's revealed. And you know what it does? With every revelation, there's a brand new response that springs. Because see, we know him, but we know him in part. And you know what? Sometimes I can't, when I get my word and I see it all over again, and sometimes I see it in a new way and I get excited. And I see something and then you know what I got to do? I got to go run and I got to go worship. Because this is what I believe. At every, every time God reveals a new level of revelation to us, our response should be worship. Worship. Isaiah 53. This is a beautiful passage of scripture. And I remember one year I... How many of you, uh, throughout the year, you may read the Bible, but does God ever have you kind of parked somewhere where you come back and revisit it? And so the Lord had me parked at Isaiah 53 a few years ago, or I can't remember how many years ago. And, and for like a whole year, I could barely read this passage of Scripture without weeping. Let me tell you why. It starts off like this. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Listen to what Isaiah says. That he's prophesying and speaking of the Messiah. There's no form of comeliness when we see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Now this sounds like a contradiction because I'm speaking about the beauty of the Lord, right? And here Isaiah is saying there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. So how can I reconcile this? Well, let's... What we need to see in this text is what Isaiah is literally saying is in his physical makeup. When, when Jesus Christ, how I many know we're in Advent season? When he was born, when he became the incarnate word of God, when he put on flesh. How many of you know the Bible says on the outside he was very ordinary? That's what the Bible says. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying there's, there was no physical beauty that we should desire him. Let me make it plain. Jesus didn't have the perfect bone structure, right? Who knows? He, 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 Jesus could have even had a big nose. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is the Bible, Bible basically says it, he wasn't like, it doesn't ever really describe him as super handsome. You know, the Bible describes David as handsome. 
The Bible describes Solomon as handsome. He described himself as handsome, right? Jesus, from all we know, was ordinary. Just an ordinary. He looked like an ordinary Jew. Olive skin. I don't know. Sometimes I like to think about it. Like your mind just, I'm like, he's a carpenter. He worked with wood. Maybe he was a little cut, you know? But then he, he strikes me as a person who fasted a lot, so maybe he was skinny, right? He was, but, but by all accounts, he's ordinary. And that's what Isaiah is saying. And, and that's why right up front, if, when we're talking about the beauty of the Lord, we need to understand that when the Bible talks about the beauty of the Lord, they're not, it's not defining it by our superficial definitions. Scripts, I mean, uh, culture will tell us that the beauty is, you know, you know, people will say those sayings, you know, and culture will repeat the line, oh, beauty is not on the outside, but it's on the inside. But if you look at cultural values, everything says the opposite. You have to look this way, dress this way, talk this way to be valuable, right? Everything about culture is screaming that beauty is defined by what you see. And Isaiah is saying, okay, his beauty was not what you saw. His beauty was what was often unseen. Here was his beauty. And this is going to sound like a contradiction because we're going to say, how is this beautiful? But read with me. It says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. Man, I'll tell you, in this Christmas time, this is one of the perfect Advent scriptures. This is why he came. How many know this is why he came? (laughs) Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded, someone say, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you know there was a time where I couldn't even read these verses without weeping? Because I would say, you weren't beautiful on the outside, but this is where your beauty was. That's, that that you're, you're God, your creator, your king, you're, you're the captain of the Lord's armies. But yet you didn't, you had no problem becoming the humble servant and loving us so much that you could take my sin. The stripes on your back, they were not for him. They were for me. This was beauty. This was love personified. He isn't, he doesn't just love. He is love. And, and, and here's the horrible thing is that we rejected him and considered him an outcast. And the Hebrew says he, he was like the scapegoat that was sent into the wilderness to suffer all by himself. And you know what? He didn't even, listen to what it says. It says, and he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he didn't open his mouth. Listen, tell me this isn't beautiful. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. His beauty was radiating. And some saw it. You know who didn't see it? The religious. But sinners saw it. You know why? Because there was a a brokenness. There was a humbleness. There was a poor in spirit. And they could see him. See, when Jesus came, he was a disappointment to a lot of people because they expected him to come a certain way. But when he came a different way, they had a chance to see who he really was and they missed it. The Bible says that as Jesus walked the earth, we beheld his glory. Right? And, and, and obviously, he was, obviously some of it had to have been held back because like on, on the mountain of transfiguration, when he was transfigured, you know, he, he was revealed at an even greater level, and then the disciples fell down in worship. So I believe while Jesus was walking, obviously some of it was veiled inside of his physical body, but I still think his glory was being seen. How? Because his attributes were being put on display for everyone to see. Because, see, sometimes we wonder what God is like. And here's, what I've, here's the thing. You don't have to wonder what he's like. Jesus is what he's like. 
Isaiah 53 is what he's like. Here's what's amazing about him. He's mighty, but he's humble. He could snap his fingers and erase all of human history. But he says, I'm humble and low of heart. Lowly of heart. He's the lion, but he's also the lamb. Oh, someone say. As he's revealed, as he's revealed to us, we begin to see his beauty and his worth. Turn with me to, this is where we're going to end today in Mark 14. And I'm going to preach for the last eight minutes we have together, eight, ten minutes we have together. Turn with me to the book of Mark chapter uh, 14, verse 3. This is the story of the woman who comes to anoint his, him at Bethany. And it says this, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very, someone say very, very. costly oil of spikenard. How many of you uh, love cologne and perfume? How many of you have multiple sets at home? I'll tell you, I, 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 lo- I, you know, I love cologne. Actually, people will always tell me, man, Drew, you smell so good. Like, I, I actually, I, that's one of my things. Like, I like to smell good, right? Like, I don't want to be smelling funky, right? <laughs> I like to smell good. So when people give me cologne, it's, I love, look, and I buy people cologne because it's an easy gift. Like, like at Christmas, how many of you have already bought some people some cologne or perfume? Who doesn't like it, right? You see, we're very blessed in modern times because we can have multiple sets. But how many know back then this type of oil was very costly? And really, it was most of the time it was only wealthy people who smelled good all the time. And but so she has this flask of very costly oil. Some people say six months worth of salary. Some people say a year worth of salary. But it says that there was. Um, then it says she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has... Come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be, will be told as a memorial to her. Let me tell you what this woman had that the ones around her didn't have. She had a revelation of who he was. Because even Jesus said, y'all aren't getting it. She's anointing me for my burial. You know why? Because only kings... And wealthy people, but especially kings, when it was time for kings to be buried, they were, um, you know, people would anoint them and cover them with very costly oil and they would make them smell good, right? And and this was something that was really reserved for wealthy people, but especially kings. And here this woman, here she is, she has a revelation that this is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so she comes and breaks this flask of oil and the rest of them are criticizing her saying, look, that's a waste. We could have sold this and given it to the poor. You see, they're thinking with their minds, logistically. And what they're saying, how many know that what they're saying is true? Right? But they're, but they're only thinking from a limited perspective because in her perspective, she had revelation of his worth. So for her to break this oil on Jesus and anoint his head and his feet was not a waste because to her, the cost of the oil was in proportion to the worth she ascribed to Jesus. Listen to me. Worship will always look foolish to those who don't know his worth. Always. Some of us 
have experiences. You have relatives and friends who talk down on you. Why do you spend so much time at the church? Why do you go to church every Sunday? You could be staying at home, cooking barbecue, getting ready for the Texans game. Why do you, why do you, why do you give so much to missions? Why, why do you spend so much time in prayer? Why do you spend so much time reading that book? You know why? They don't get it. They don't understand because they haven't seen what you've seen. Some people say, why do you worship like that? Why can't you just worship and be still? Just be, you, your worship makes me uncomfortable. Listen, that's why you should never judge someone's worship. Because number one, you don't know their story. You don't know where they've come from. And listen, it may seem like a waste to you. And here's the other, here's the other label. Uh, you know, I, I hear this a lot. People say, you know, they're just emotional. Listen, if, if, if God created you to have emotions and you, and here, here's, here's, here's my point of view. If emotions can be bad, they can be used for good. If you're going to use your emotions, at least use them on God. <laughs> when David, when David, when David danced before the ark, right? How many, you know, he looked like a fool to a lot of people because really he was half naked dancing in a, in a linen ephod that the priests wear, and he's not even a Levite. I mean, you know, some people thought he was an idiot on several levels, and when he got to Jerusalem, his wife said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, why are you out there dancing like that? Have dra- are you just trying to show off? But here, how, how many you know, David wasn't thinking about all that. All he, he was dancing. How many know <laughs> that he looked like a fool? And you can't tell me that he was dancing with all his might and he was emotionless. David wasn't just, mm-hmm. he was dancing with all his might. Here's why. Because this is a man that is a mighty warrior. He's a king. But when it came to worship, he was a fool for Jesus. As a matter of fact, he said, I'll become even more undignified than this. That's, you, you ever notice that when people get lost in worship, they do, they look undignified. They look unput together. It's because they're in another place. They're seeing the beauty of the Lord. And here's the thing. I'm not ever going to tell you how to worship. You can worship how you want to worship. What I'm saying is never judge someone else's worship. So for this woman, this uh, costly oil was not a waste because sacrifice becomes easy in worship for the believer who sees the worthiness and the beauty of Jesus. Pastor's been talking to us about Solomon's temple. He said in this temple of Solomon, there was great sacrifice. There was great worship. And there, the, fire of the, the, Holy, the fire of God's presence was there. Where there's great sacrifice and worship. Peter says this, we're all living stones, a house that's being built up, a spiritual house for the Lord, where we can offer spiritual sacrifices to him. There's always sacrifice in worship. Someone say amen. I'm going to close with this thought. I want to say this emphatically and I want to say this gracefully, but I want to say this emphatically. I believe this. This is the difference between a crowd and a church. Let me explain what I mean. Back in the, I think it was the late 80s and early 90s, there there arose a movement in Christianity that was called the seeker sensitive movement. And what they described, and and honestly, what they set out to do, I think was from a pastoral heart, but it, it was from a flawed perspective, but they basically said this, let's find out what kind of church that everyone wants and we'll make our church that. Now, to some degree, there's nothing wrong with that. You, on some level, we have to do everything we can do to accommodate people. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But it went so far that it landed a lot of churches in a bad place. I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking from ignorance. This is stuff that I've heard and known. There are churches around the country who have literally told people, told their worshipers, don't, and whatever song you sing today, don't mention the blood. It's offensive to people. 
right? Then that happens. There are preachers who will shy away from certain topics or discussions because the, the, the fear of being offensive. Now, I told you, I think some of um, the, their original intentions came from a pastoral place. They wanted to make people feel All that's good. All that's good. But here, here, here's the point. It's that so many places and so many people have lost this this one thing, this calling, our first primary calling, and that's to worship the Lord. John Piper said it like this. He says, uh, says, um, missions is not the goal of the church. Worship is. He said this. Listen to this next part. Missions exist because because worship does not. Let me break this down. In other words, what he's saying is, the end goal of the church, the chief goal of the church is worship. The reason we still have missions is because there's still places in the earth where worship is not going forth. And is because where the gospels preach and where Christ is revealed, their response is worship. And so there will always be missions wherever there's not worship. Are you hearing me? And see, the crowd is always interested in what can Jesus do for me. The church, the mature saints, are, 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 they first and foremost come together, not because of what can Jesus do for me, but what can I bring him? Simple breakdown. When the crowds followed Jesus, they were with him as long as they got their miracles and their answers. But the minute that Jesus asked something of them, they disappeared. Am I right? But and, and what I'm saying is this, is that our worship's got to get to a place where we don't come here and worship or worship in our daily lives. But just because we have a need or just because we need him to do something, we all have needs. We all have um, things that we need. And, and he's a good father, right? And we're his children. He doesn't mind us asking, but we've got to get to the point where we don't get up on Sunday morning and come to the house of the Lord because we just want him to do something for us. It's got to get to the place where say, Lord, whether you do something for me or not, I'm going to go and I'm going to offer a sacrifice of worship, not because I need anything, but because you're worthy. You're worthy. One thing have I desired of the Lord that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days and behold his beauty. You you want to say the amazing thing about God? You're not going, if you pursue him and and love him and, 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 and pursue him with all of your heart, here's the amazing thing. I've never seen him not meet needs. Philippians says, our God shall supply all of our needs, right? He's going to do it. What I'm saying is, is it can't be the motivation for worship. We've got the motivation for worship has to be the revelation. We have seen the worth and the beauty of the Lord. And my only response is I have to worship. I have to worship. And I want to tell you this morning as I close, there's always more. One of my favorite favorite scenes from a movie ever. Uh, it was from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. How many of you have seen that movie? How many of you read the books? For Many of you know this and maybe some of you don't. C.S. Lewis was a Christian uh, theologian, writer, thinker. Um, honestly, I don't know of an, 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 a more brilliant writer than C.S. Lewis, personally. And the way he wrote was just incredible. And, and the way he writes the story of Narnia he, he makes Aslan a lion, representing the Lion of Judah, but he's, he's writing it inside of a story, right? And there's this scene, I forgot which episode or which movie or book, but there's a scene where Lucy sees Aslan after he's been away. They thought Aslan was dead, right? Or he, he appeared to be dead, but he came back, which is also symbolic. <laughs> Hello. So she sees Aslan, and this is what Lucy says to Aslan. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan said, Little one, that's because you're bigger. And she says, wait, it's not because you're bigger? And Aslan says, no, it's because you've grown. Every year you grow, I will appear bigger to you. In other words, he's always been that big. We just couldn't see it. That's how this works. Why do we worship? Because he's worthy. Why, and all, but also because we need to gaze at him. 
We need to spend time gazing at him in his word and meditating on him in prayer and worshiping him. You know why? Because the spirit of God wants to reveal more of him to our hearts by way of the spirit. And you know what? We'll find ourselves like Lucy saying, God, you're bigger than I ever imagined. You're more beautiful than I ever imagined. And and, and then we discover it's not him that's changed. It's us that's changed. It's our mind that's grown. It's our, our, our capacity has expanded. And, I, and I, I, this is my last point. In 1996, when this church was, was visited by God, supernaturally visited by God, which we've talked a lot about, pastors have been talking a lot. One, one of the themes leading up to that revival, pastor preached um, um, a, a series for two years. The series was Knowing Christ and Making Him Known. How many of you were here to remember that series? And my grandpa told me this one time, uh, personally, when we were talking about this, he said at that time, there was just such a desire to, to have more of him and to know more of him. And he said, you know, every week he says, I was uh, literally preaching on knowing Christ. He said, we never got to the making him known part. And he said, he said, it got to the point where people started coming to me and saying, could you please preach on something else? We know him. We get it. We know Jesus. No, and listen, whoever that was, bless their heart, we, we all get that way sometimes, right? We all do. We all, we all get that. And he said, my only response was, all I can tell you is there's more than we have or know now. The key, one of the keys to that breakthrough was this insatiable desire, this fire, this passion. To, to not know about him, but to know him and to press in like to press in and get the more that he has for us. You see, because we have to take him in in doses. You know why? Because if he were to reveal all of himself to us all at once, we couldn't handle it. We couldn't handle it. If, if me and you were right now transported and, 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 and we're standing before the glory of the Lord, you know why we would fall to our face? Because he's like a million volts of glory and goodness and holiness. And we wouldn't even know what to do with what we're seeing. The reason why we couldn't look at him, it's not that he can't look at us. It's that we can't bear to look at him because we can't fathom what we're seeing. Literally, we couldn't take him all in at once. And that's how revelation is. It's line upon line and precept upon precept. And that's why we constantly press in because there's more of him to know and discover. And I'm here to challenge you this morning. I'm here to stir up that, that desire in you. That in, in this series that we're in and in this, even this transition we're in, you know how I many know we're moving, but you know, we're moving to, I believe from glory to glory. And I believe that there's more of him to be seen. How many of you are believing for a deeper level of intimacy and revelation in your life? Would you stand with me to your feet? I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, there's always more. There's always more.